So we are in a study where we're looking at what is biblical worship. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 has always been one of those passages that uh, try to grasp the, the vastness. Paul has just said at the end of Romans 11, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And immediately, Paul goes into this, Therefore, as a result of, as a response to everything that God has done, the unsearchable unfathomable things that God has done, namely our redemption. Worship. Live to His glory forevermore. And last week we, we began this series and we said the main point was that God has designed His creation to be totally satisfied in Him alone. That worship flows from a, a satisfaction, a proper response of being satisfied in who God is. Who, ha, who he has revealed himself to be. And the gospel reminds us, again, that our satisfaction is to be in God. That God desires to be worshipped. And, and we, we offered up a definition that, that worship was the proper response to encountering the truth of who God has revealed himself to be. And responding to the truth of who God has revealed himself to be. And I want to build on that today. I, I want to build on that today as as because i think the tendency again is to is to limit the scope to limit the role to limit the the spectrum or the arena in which we worship to make it far too finite to make it small too limited in the arena of what is true worship and and you see that in the main point that our worship is to encompass every aspect of our lives and everything we do and listen it's fueled by redemption if you don't hear anything else our worship is fueled by redemption the forgiveness of our sin and the entrance into his people the worship of god our worship of god is actually the main reason behind our salvation I realize that that runs contrary to everything that we hear, everything that we're bombarded with in our culture, everything that we're bombarded with in many of our churches, that, that everything is about you. It's all about me. That, that God is, is so lucky to have us. That, that we're the centerpiece of everything that, and, and what everything is about. That, that even, they go so far as to say, the testimony, the cross is a, is a testimony to my great worth since God was willing to pay such a high price. My, my fear is, is that horribly skews the cross. Because the cross is not primarily a testimony to my great worth. It is a testimony to God's great worth and his hatred for my sin. That, that, he would, that he would crucify his own son, that he would be, he himself would be propitiated. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save 
that which is lost. But if you, if you continue that to, look, to John 4.23, it says, For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Why redemption? That we would worship Him. He has saved us to be worshipers. And again, you see it on your handout. It, it, it reminds us that the primary reason for our salvation is not that we may escape hell, though that is certainly a blessing, nor that we receive and enjoy God's blessings, though that certainly happens. But the main purpose behind our redemption is that God would be worshipped and seen as glorious throughout all the world. That's the primary reason. And again, that runs counter to our culture. We don't, we don't like that. But that's it. Listen to a couple passages. And again, we could go on and on and on about the verses that speak to God doing what he does alone to the glory of God. But listen to just a couple. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. You know what God's saying there? I will not share my glory with another. Not even you and I. You, you go to Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. Listen to what he says. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you. In order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Listen to what he says in verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? What, what are our lives to be about as believers? What, what is that end to which we are to seek in everything we do? The glory of the Lord. That's worship. It is to seek the very thing that God seeks. It is to seek the very thing that our salvation has allowed us to seek, namely the glory of God. That, that everyone would see God's glory in our lives. You can trace it all throughout the Bible. Everything that God has ever done has primarily been about His glory. Even, even our redemption, even our redemption, our adoption into God's people as the children of God, primarily about His glory. God is seeking, He is enabling us to be true worshipers in our salvation. He is, and He is placing them all throughout the world. He has ransomed us, He has rescued us, He has redeemed us that we would serve Him. That we would be little outposts of His glory. And I, we've shared these before, but even in Exodus 8, the Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. Why the ransom? Why the freeing from Egyptian slavery? Not to go live for yourself. Not to go eat and drink and, uh, of all this milk and honey and, and just so you can, you can live however you want to live and then when you die, you, you get this get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not the purpose of redemption. He, and again, in case we missed it there, in case we forgot, 
Go to Exodus 9.1. The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Why the Exodus? Why the redemption? Not simply that, that his people would be free, but rather that his people would be free to worship him. That his people would be free to serve him. That his people would be free to, to, to glorify him. To, to, the whole world would look at Israel and say, how is this little nation thriving? How is this little nation surviving? And here's the answer, the glory of God. Everything about their life was to reflect glory and praise back to God. Not to say how great they were, but rather to say how great their God was. This is, this is God-centered. This is God-centered redemption. And, and the great danger for God's people, as, as Clay said this morning, is to forget. It, immediately, and, and we've shared it in Deuteronomy 6, when when God is people on the cusp, they're on the cusp of the promised land. And he says this in Deuteronomy 6.10, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you. Great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, hewn cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch for yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's the danger? What, what, does all of the, what does all of Israel's history remind us of? What does our history remind us of? That we're forgetful. That we're wanderers. Lord, I feel it. The song says, prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, take my heart and seal it. He, seal it for thy courts above. Prone to wonder. Prone to forget. And, and in God's grace, knowing that, in God's grace, he wove into the fabric of, of Israel's existence remembrances. Not only for that generation, but for subsequent generations that they would that they would remember the grace of their great God, that they would remember the works and the acts of their great God. Why? Because their tendency was to forget. If you go to Deuteronomy 26, 8 and 9, he says, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Who did it? God did it. That was the whole point. The whole point was to remind them who did this work in their lives. Did they earn it or were they graced it? They were graced it. It was a reminder. And, and you think about all of Israel's history. The Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, trumpets, day of atonement, booths, the sa even the Sabbath. All of the purposes, all of the purposes were to draw them back to their redemption. It was meant to take their minds back to the greatness of their God. Every single year, time and time again, woven into the fabric of their lives, reminders of God's grace. What would that do? It would prompt worship. 
I mean, think about it. Think about if that was the case, and, and your son or your daughter, there's like, Daddy, why are we doing this festival? Well, let me tell you about what God did to our, for our people. Hey, Dad, why are we doing this? Well, let me tell you about what God did. Hey, Daddy, why don't we do this? Let me tell you about what God did. You see the point? And you would worship that you might not forget. Because subsequent generations would not have seen, physically seen God do that. And he wove into the fabric of their life. And you see the benefits, you see them down on your handout, the benefits of remembering redemption through worship, the benefits of celebrating. And, and every single one of these were woven into the fabric of God's people's lives. But they're also to be woven into the fabric of our lives today. The, their worship, you see it there, had a communal benefit Every year, the nation would, that was scattered all over the place, you know what they do? They would come together. There was a communal benefit. You think about us. All week, we're scattered all over this Tampa, St. Pete area. Guess what we do? Every week, you know what we do? We stop what we're doing, and we come together. Communal benefit. Reminding ourselves that you're not alone. Reminding yourselves that there's no temptation that has overtaken you, but such is common to men. Encouraging one another, Hebrews 10 says, to hang in there. Hang in there. There are soldiers fighting the battle all over this town. There's a communal benefit to our worship. But also to look and see the great work that God is doing. You, when, you, when you look around and you see the body growing, you see the work of God. There's a communal benefit. But there was also a commemorative benefit. To remember. Think about even in this place as we talk on Sundays. Hey, how'd your week go? Hey, let me tell you what God did this week. Hey, let me tell you about this opportunity I had to share the gospel this week. Hey, let me tell you. You see the commemorative benefit? There's a remembrance. Their, their worship had a theological benefit. It reminded them of sin. It reminded them of, of the greatness of their sin. It reminded them of the punishment of their sin. It reminded them the, the payment that had to be made. All those animals that were sacrificed and slaughtered because of their sin. There was a theological component. I, I was listening to a, a, a man this week and, and uh, he was preaching and he said, one of the great tragedies of church today is he said too often people leave leave the sermon and they're not uncomfortable too often people leave the sermon and they're far too comfortable to just continue life as they came in living it we ought to leave uncomfortable when we're exposed to the word of god when we're like clay said isaiah the first thing when god when isaiah saw a clear picture of the greatness of god what was the very first thing he realized about himself? That he was undone. That he was absolutely not holy. The danger is, is that we in our churches today still, we elevate man to the point that the gap between God and man is so minuscule. I am unholy in and of myself. Jesus Christ, through the gospel, has declared me to be holy, to be righteous. Therefore, my life flows from that. I mean, as I prepared this week, I kept thinking about the stewards and, and what's going on 
in the morning. This, this evening when you pillow your heads, there is a little boy that is going to meet his parents for the very first time. Think about that. They are going to bestow upon him a simple name, Stuart. That simple act of grace is going to change everything about Sawyer's life. You grasp that. He's just not going to take their name and then keep living how he's always lived. No, they're going to bring him back. They're going to put him in the bed. They're going to feed him. They're going to love him. They're going to guide him. They're going to lead him. They're going to immediately treat him as if it was Sloan, as if it was Tia, as if it was Landon, as if it was Annika. Immediately, that child is placed equal footing with their other four children. Change everything about his life. There's a theological benefit to our worship. To realize not only how great God is, but how gracious God is and how, how great a sinner we are. It's okay to leave comfortable, uncomfortable, uncomfortable, not comfortable, uncomfortable. I mean, when we come into a picture of the greatness of God, if, if there's not a little bit of woe is me, I am undone, we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. Because Romans 3.23, we all fall short. I need the, the richness of God's word indwelling me at all times, powering me to live this life. But there was also a typological benefit. And here's what I mean by that. It, it, it gave them a glimpse of what the future would be like. This right here is reminding us of a glimpse of what all eternity will be like for Christians. Worshiping our great God. It is a glimpse that people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, we will gather forever to worship our great God. That's what eternity will be like. True worship every moment, every day, for all eternity. Declaring the greatness of God. And our worship, our worship seeks the very same thing. We've gathered here to encourage one another. We've got the Lord's Supper. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? It's to remember, to remind, to remind us of his death, his burial, his resurrection, the high price of our sin. Encouraging one another to be steadfast, reminding us that our, our hope is in the Lord and the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. All of, that's why we worship today corporately, individually, but corporately. All focused on the work of God. Worshiping God for what He has done. What He's promised to do. What He is doing. And that's why you see all throughout scriptures, pictures, reminders, different ways of trying to picture what our salvation, what, what, what has actually happened in our salvation. And on your list, on your, your handout there, I, I, I give us a few of the reminders, the way that that salvation is pictured so that we would grasp the, the fullness, but also we'd understand the, gra the grace of God. In redemption, you see it, we've been resurrected. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sin while you were dead in your trespasses of sin. In, in salvation, you have been brought back to life. What, what I am, in, in large part, what I am doing here when I am preaching, I, 
we are de- understand we are declaring the word we are declaring the word we are preaching we are heralding the word to dead people asking the power of god to raise them from the dead that's salvation literally coming back from the dead i don't have that power in and of myself i, I remember i was sharing the gospel with a with a uh, a man who was uh, um he was a follower of Islam, and we were having an inter- interaction, and he said, are you trying to convert me? And I said, listen, buddy, I don't have that power. I don't have that power and authority. He said, what do you mean? I said, think about this. If you repented of your sin right now, if you renounced Allah and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what would it cost you? He said, it would cost me everything. I said, you really think I have that power? I said, it's no different than than me looking at you. Do you understand what it would cost me if I renounced Jesus Christ and began following Allah? That's supernatural, buddy. You don't have that power. When we share the gospel, listen, that's a supernatural thing. We're relying on God raising somebody from the dead. It's supernatural. In redemption, we've been adopted into God's family. Romans 8.15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We have been adopted, brought into the people of God. In redemption, we've been rescued. From captivity to Satan. That was Colossians 1.3. He's rescued us and he's transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Total transfer. That, that's why Philippians 3 says our citizenship is now in heaven. We don't belong to this age. This is not our home. Colossians 1.21 20 and, 20, and 22 says we've been reconciled. We've been reconciled. We who were enemies, we were, we were estranged from God, and we've been reconciled through the gospel. Colossians 1.13 also says that we've been transferred into God's kingdom as citizens, transferred, total citizenship change. Even that, listen, I was asking Lee and Kelly about it. The second, the second that that adoption is finalized, Sawyer becomes an American citizen, just like that. Think about that. Right now, he is not an American citizen. The second that that adoption is finalized, just like that, he becomes an American citizen. Total change. Total transformation. Colossians 1.14 and, and, and 2.12-14 says that we have been forgiven all of our trespasses. In redemption, you have been forgiven All of your trespasses, though your sins were as scarlet, Isaiah says, they will be white as snow. 2.12 of Colossians, having been buried with him in baptism in which we were raised from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcised your heart, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Not some, all. In redemption, we've been redeemed from our futility, our, our fallen way of life. And in 1 Peter, we, we saw that in 1. He says, if you, in verse 17, if you address 
As Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay, knowing, here it is, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The stewards paid a hefty price for this adoption. God paid a far heavier price for our redemption. The blood of His Son, the blood of God Himself, co-equal, the Son, full deity. Redeemed, not with... Not with Perishable things like gold and silver, but the imperishable. In redemption, Christ became our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we've seen it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. God substituted where you and I deserve to die. He substituted his son. In redemption, the righteous demands of God have been satisfied. That's Romans 3, 25 in the concept of Propitiation, listen to what he says, when, whom, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. God made a satisfactory payment in Jesus Christ for all the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1, in this we have, the, in this he says he, we have propitiation, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. 1 John, I think that's 2, 1 and 2. Romans 5, 1 says, in redemption we have peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, where there once was enmity between God and sinners, now there is peace. Where once we, God, in, a, in that sense, according to Psalm 5, hated us because of our sin. Now he loves us as a son. We are no longer enemies, he says in Romans 5, 8 through 10. Now we are sons. Peace with God. In redemption, we've been justified. That means to be declared righteous. In Romans 4, 6 and 7, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. The list goes on and on. Why? So that we don't forget. So that we don't undervalue our redemption. So that we don't lose our amazement and our awe at our redemption. You say, Chris, that's not possible. Well, that's not what 2 Peter chapter 1 says. Look at what he says. He says in, in verse 9, he's gone on to list all these things. Add to your faith this and this and applying all diligence. And, and look what he says it's in verse 9, 2 Peter 1, 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Forget that you're a new creation. Forget all those things. You, the tendency is for us to forget that. 
to devalue it. And again, the, 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 degree, the degree that we understand and appreciate how vast our sinfulness was, how amazing God's grace is, the natural overflow is worship. He who has been forgiven little does what little? Loves little. Worships little. And, and, and Luke makes that very clear in Luke chapter 7. Listen to this, starting in verse 36. The one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. So you begin to see the heart issue going on. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, do you have something to say? Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. And Jesus goes on to paint this picture in an illustration. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And listen, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection of our redemption to our worship? Listen, if we think God just kind of bumped us over the hump, that we were good people and God just kind of helped us out, Listen, the response is you worship little. If you realize the debt that you were forgiven in your sin, you actually you realize the greatness of our forgiveness, the greatness of our sin, the greatness of what God has done, you know what the natural response is? You love much, i.e. you worship much. It's fueled by our redemption. God's not saving good people and just kind of helping them out. He's saving wretched sinners. He's saving his enemies. He is saving people who are dead in their transgressions. He is saving haters of God, and he is turning them into worshipers. Do, do you see the vastness of, that, of our redemption? You see the vastness of repentance? You were not a good person. He doesn't save good people. Go read Romans 3. There are none good. There are none who do good. He is saving wretched sinners. And the degree that we diminish our sinfulness, we're robbing ourselves of worship. And that's uncomfortable, and that might not be what you got up this morning wanting to hear, but that's what we need to be reminded of. God didn't help us out when he saved us. He brought us back from the dead. I mean, imagine, imagine Sawyer coming in this place 
next Sunday or the next Sunday and walking with his chest out acting like he did something. Like he, he was warranted it. Imagine him going back into the orphanage and walking around with his chest out like he's greater than the rest of the orphans. You know why he's, you know why he's been elevated? Because of what the stewards did. Not because of what he did. It's grace. Part of the reason why our worship may be lacking is because our understanding of the gospel is lacking. Our understanding of the greatness of God's forgiveness toward us. Maybe we need to rightly see ourselves as Isaiah saw himself and say, Woe is me, I'm a, I'm a man or a woman of unclean lips. I'm not, I'm not quite what I thought I was. And again, our worship, you see it on your hand now, flows from our redemption. If we don't grasp the redemption then we won't worship rightly. And, and in Christ, going back to John 4, Jesus is making very clear to this woman at the well, we looked at it last week, the same thing, that, that, that there's a new, a new era has dawned, if you will. He says, our fathers, she says, our fathers worship this mountain, and you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We sure worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now when true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the people of God, listen, seeks, seeks to be his worshipers. What is God doing in salvation? He's seeking worshipers. He's seeking outposts of his glory all over this city, all over the world that will declare the greatness of God. Little lighthouses to declare the greatness of God. And in Christ, listen, in Christ, all the shadows of the Old Testament, they gave way to the actual substance to which they were pointing. The whole Old Testament system pointed to Christ. You can go to Colossians 2, all the feasts, all the festivals, all the sacrifices, all of that. Galatians 3:24 says even the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. We have that fullness. Again, Hebrews chapter chapter 10 verses 19 and 20, he the writer of Hebrews says it specifically. He says, "Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which Christ inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere faith, heart of assurance, of having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession, a new and living way. Hebrew, why, why do you say that, Chris? Because Hebrews 10.4, he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus Christ has done what the blood of bulls and goats could not fully do. It was pointing to Christ. 
He says that in, in verse 11. Every priest, here's the, again, the greatness of Christ, the superiority of Christ. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Again, why, why is, why, again, I don't mean to be rude, but why is Jesus not on that cross? Because the sacrifice is done. It's finished. And there's subtle messages all over this world in different, different ways. And you say, well, what's the point, Chris? Because him being still on that cross tells me that his work isn't done. His work is done. There's one way. One way for people to be reconciled to a holy God, and it's through Jesus Christ. And it's done. He offered it one time for all. That was the superiority, the amazement of what Christ has done. Again, even, again, we read even verses 14 through 18, again, of chapter 10. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You realize in Christ Jesus, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, he has perfected you. You've been made full, complete in Christ. Again, even verse 18, 17, their sins and their lawlessness, I will remember no more. That was the picture in the Old Testament of the scapegoat. They would have two goats. They would slaughter the one. They would take the blood of that one. They would put it on the other goat. And what would they do? They would send that other goat out into the wilderness. What was the picture? The picture was this. I am separating you from your sins. He's gone. They're gone. And he says in verse 18, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. You know what? Our offering is for worship. Our offering is for thanksgiving. In Christ, you see it on your handout, we have, through Christ, a new, a, we now worship in a new and living way. Redemption still fuels it, but it's in a new and living way. And here's the point. All of life is worship. Not relegated to a time a specific time, not relegated to a specific place, not, not relegated to a specific person, i.e. the priest who can offer these. The Bible says you and I are believer priests. There's a new era. All of life. This is what, what Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you not know that you are the temple of God? You say, Chris, why does that matter? Well, what did the temple signify in the Old Testament? The, sig the temple signified the glory of God dwelling amongst his people, the presence of God amongst his people. You, believer, are that temple. What did they do in the temple? They offered sacrifices. You're that temple. That, that's what Paul is saying. That's why we talked about Romans 1. I say all that to lead us to, to Romans 12.1. Paul has dealt with all of that, and that's what he's saying. You are the temple. You, believer, your life is the place where the sacrifice of worship takes place. All flowing from redemption. Redemption. 
Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, everything you've seen so far, all that I've talked about and so much more, mercies of God, redemption, mercy of God. Therefore, what does he say? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. The word there literally means reasonable. The the only reasonable response to really seeing what God has done is to offer your whole bodies. Not just Sunday morning for 15 minutes, not just Sunday morning for an hour, not just Sunday morning if you're really devoted two hours, you stay for both hours because you're really good. No, no, no. All of life. All of life. What is Paul saying? The gospel manifests its power, manifests its effects in every way of our lives. Paul spends 11 chapters talking about the gospel. Right here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it flips. Okay, now that you understand the gospel... Here's your only reasonable response. And every single thing that we're called to do as believers is rooted in what God first did for us, fueled by redemption. The mercies of God. And what does he say? He says, and you see it on your handout, this is our offering, our whole life. Our whole life. Surrendered to God in His glory. And, and Paul uses that sacrificial imagery here. Many of these people that he's writing to, they would, have, they would have in their lifetime, they would have witnessed a lamb being sacrificed on the altar. They would have witnessed its blood flowing down. They would have witnessed that animal being burned and consumed. What's he saying? Christ has offered a sufficient sacrifice. He was the perfect lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. But the imagery remains in the sense that you and me are the, are the sacrifice. We are a living sacrifice. Our lives. And you see it there on your handout. Believers, sinners, redeemed by the blood of Christ, worship not by offering a bloody sacrifice on an altar, but by offering our lives. Is it not just a one-time, once-a-year deal? Christian worship becomes a way of life. Every moment of every day, it extends to every dimension of our lives, not confined to a certain place or a time, all of life. That's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. The grace and mercy you see it in the handout of our God in redemption affects our whole lives. Not just one segment of it. This is what Paul said in Galatians 20. I no longer live, but Christ lives, Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself up for me. What does Paul say? I don't live anymore. Saul is dead. Paul is living now. But Paul is living by Christ living in me. This is what he said as well in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul goes on to say, listen, it's better for me to die and get on out of here. But if I'm going to live on, it's going to be fruitful ministry. And here's the shocking thing about what Paul says. 
for many of us, if I said, hey, if somebody came in here, would you die on behalf of God in a moment? You'd say, oh yeah, I'd do it. And you think in your mind that's worship. Here's what Paul says. That ain't really the worship he's looking for. You know what God really wants for you? Every moment of every day to live for him. Not die for him. Not physically die. He wants you to live for He wants you to die for him by living for him. I mean, think about that even as a parent. If you said, Chris, would you die for your family? Yeah, I hope so. But you know what, Karen? You know what, Bradley? You know what, Sarah Grace? You know what God wants for me more than me taking a bullet for my family? They want me to live for my family every day. It's not a one-time, one-moment, go-out-in-a-blaze-of-glory type of thing. That's easy. You know what the hard thing is? Waking up every day and serving three people in the strength that God provides when my flesh says, serve me. You know what God gets greater glory of? Day by day doing that to his glory. Not this one-time act. And again, Christ was the spotless lamb that was sacrificed for us. And in Christ, you and I have become spotless and clean. Everything that Leviticus 22, everything that Exodus 12 said, the sacrifice had to be in Christ, we have been cleansed. Now, listen, our lives become the offering. Please hear that. Please hear the the beauty of us being washed white as snow. In Christ, we are spotless. We are without blemish. In Christ, therefore, our lives are acceptable, as Paul says, acceptable offerings. And again, all throughout, all throughout scriptures, in God, listen, in redemption, God is transforming sinners into whole life worshipers. And, and he says this, all of our life is to be an overflow of the grace of God. And I love this picture in, in, in Psalm 45, verse 1. You can write the verse down. He says, my heart overflows with, this was a song of love. He says, my heart overflows with a good theme. The, the, the word there, overflows, is literally the picture of a boiling pot. What does a boiling pot do if it is not watched? It overflows. The love of God so boiling in our lives. So, so again, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, I think it's around 14 or something, he says, the love of Christ compels me. Just, uh, that our hearts would be so enamored by God that it, it would just boil over in worship. Spill over in all of our lives. And you see it there. In worship, we're, just, we're simply giving to the Lord what He's due. This is about worthiness. The only worship that is acceptable to God is all of life worship. And real quickly, because we're running out of time, whole life worship is the only acceptable worship. You see it on their handout. Acceptable. And there is a three elements to this in our lives. And, and I just want you to see the all-encompassing thing. It's, there's an outward dimension. There is an outward dimension. Listen to what Romans 14, 18 says. And listen for the word acceptable. Romans 14, 18. For he who is in this way serves Christ is acceptable of, to God and approved by men. Somebody who is looking out for the needs of others. 
In Romans 15, 16, talking about sharing the gospel, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The outward, our, our serving one another is an acceptable form of worship. But there's an inward dimension. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, Paul says the same word about acceptable in Ephesians 5, talking about an inward, our personal behavior, our hearts. Listen to what he says in, in 8 through 10 of chapter 5. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is acceptable to the Lord. In 1 Timothy 2, he talks about praying for our leaders, and he says it is the, that is the acceptable form of worship to our Lord. There's an inward dimension to whole life worship. There's also an upward dimension. And in Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, talking about thanksgiving and praise, this is what he says, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for such sacrifices God is pleased. It's acceptable. Look. Everything about our life is to be about God's glory. Even in John 17, 24, as y'all are closing up your Bibles, y'all think I'm done because there's no more fill-outs. I know how it works. Like, yeah, he put that last fill-in-the-blank in, I'm out. I'm out. Well, it's only 1049. I got 20 minutes. No. Real quick, though, real quick. Man, I only had five pages of notes. How did this take so long? Sorry. I thought good this week. I'm like, I only have five pages of notes. I'll be out. Listen to what he says. Real quick. I don't want y'all to leave comfortable. Father, Jesus is speaking, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. What, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying for all eternity, you know what we're going to do? We're going to recognize his glory. For all eternity, we're going to proclaim the glory of our great God. And listen, I want to say this again very carefully. I don't want to be, I don't want to be labeled a heretic, so please listen to me very carefully here. The primary reason for my redemption, the primary reason for your redemption, is not for us simply to escape hell. The primary reason for our redemption is not for us to be blessed with earthly blessings. The, the, the primary goal is not necessarily for us to be blessed, for us to receive anything as much as it is for God to be worshipped. That's what I'm getting at. The primary, utmost goal is that God would be worshipped through your life. He is creating worshippers. I'm not saying those aren't true. We get those. But the primary goal, it's not about you and me. We can't make this life about you and me. God loves and redeems not in a way to make us supreme, listen, but in a way that makes Him supreme. 
Heaven will not be, and I think this is John Piper saying this, heaven will not be a hall of mirrors where we make much of ourselves, but an increasing vision of the greatness of God. Listen to what he says. Getting to heaven, finding out that we are supreme, would be the ultimate letdown. The greatest love makes sure that God does everything in such a way to magnify his own supremacy so that when we get to heaven, we have something to increase our joy forever, namely God's glory. God and his glory are the praise forevermore. That's where we started, Romans 8.32. I mean 11.32. Now to him be the praise and the glory forevermore. Lord, May that be the cry of our lives. May that be the goal of our lives. 